Um, thank you guys so much for joining us here today. My name is Arnaldo. I am in the Dulwich Hill Gospel Community, and I'm excited to be here with you today, and I'm excited that you're here uh, with me. Um, and we are in this series, like uh, as Brian mentioned, called Church on the Margins. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, one of my, if not my favorite book in the New Testament. And uh, just a bit of a recap from last week, Matt taught us what, uh, from the first two verses, what it is, Peter, who it is Peter's speaking to. And there were two words, if, if you can remember them. One is exiles, and the other one is elect. Exiles meaning that according to the culture, we're not in the center. We're not the most influential people in the culture, and therefore we're exiles from the culture. But yet, when we look at the purposes and the plans of God, we are elect. We are at the center, the church. Not just anchor. I mean the church, the body of Christ, those who call Jesus Lord across the nations and across time. That's the church. That is the centerpiece of the plan of God to redeem and recreate this world. And a couple reasons why 1 Peter in particular is so important for us is this, because again, we live in a culture that is increasingly unsympathetic to Christianity. I don't know if you've experienced it. I, I have. And, and coming from uh, New York City, is where, where I, I was born and raised, I definitely experienced that. There was a definitely polarization uh, between uh, things becoming more secular, but at the same time, things becoming more religious. But the culture is increasingly unsympathetic. Also, we need to understand that as a community, like I said, we are at the center. Not, not just individuals, but as a community of people, we are at the center of God's purposes for the world. Not against it, but for the world. And also because our context calls for it. Our context calls for us preaching through 1 Peter because the sufferings that were happening in 1 Peter were not necessarily the sufferings that some of our brothers and sisters go under in maybe some closed countries or in some Middle Eastern countries. The, the process that was going on in the time of 1 Peter was more like what we go through today in our culture, which is ostracism, which is ridicule, which is uh, um, uh, people were losing their jobs or promotions, or they just weren't in the in crowd anymore. Karen Job, she's a scholar, she says this, the persecutions referred to in 1 Peter are understood to be sporadic, personal, and unorganized social, social ostracism of Christians with varying intensity. And that is exactly where we are in Sydney today. So 1 Peter is intensely, intensely practical for us. So we can know, learn, so we can be reshaped to be the people of God in this culture. Not against the culture, but for it. So with that in mind, I'm going to pray if you can help me to pray that would be great because I definitely need the help and you need it more to listen to me. Father, thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for the rain despite uh, any um, uh, malfunctions that it may cause. We, we ask, Lord, that you will make us soft to your word today, that you will make our hearts and our ears soft, and that you will make our feet strong so that we'd be able to follow in your ways. So, Father, help me. Help me now to forget the things that will be unhelpful for your people. And help me to remember the things, Lord, that will be. There's a particular need today. I feel it acutely. And I, Father, I pray that you will meet us in this room today. That not one person will walk out of here unchanged. 
that if you came in here in darkness, you would go out as a son or daughter of light. Father, I can't do this, but you can by your Holy Spirit. So I, I ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, when, when, I, when we started our gospel community in Dalachil, all the guys went around, and we told our, uh, our, the married guys anyway, we told what our story was, how we proposed. Now, my proposal story, which I'm not going to get into, uh, was, was, it's quite uh, uh, boring. I asked my wife to marry me over the phone. I was in New York, and she was here in Sydney. Uh, so, and it was something that we decided while we were apart, uh, actually, and now we've been married not, almost nine years. But I didn't get the chance to have to go to all these different jewelry stores to have to look for an engagement ring. I was like, sweet, I saved, you know, 10 grand. That's great. I'll take her on a vacation later on. But I, I didn't get to do that. But if you notice, when you go into a jewelry store, generally what happens is they put all the jewelry on top of a backdrop, of a dark backdrop. Now, the, the black velvet or the, the blue velvet or the, or the burgundy velvet doesn't necessarily add any value to the diamond. But what it does, it accentuates it. It beautifies it. It, it lets the, the contours and the colors and the clarity. I've been doing my, my reading. It, it, it lets it show, right? And so often when we read the New Testament, and 1 Peter in particular, we're reading it. We're reading this diamond without a backdrop. And the backdrop here is going to be the Old Testament because Peter is steeped. He is laced with the Old Testament. And once we understand, once we can change the frequency of our ears to just pick up those waves of how Peter is using the Old Testament, then what's going to happen with 1 Peter, I believe, is just going to become more alive for you, more beautiful for you. Once we see the contrast between what Peter is talking about and the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So we're going we're gonna to tune our ears as we go through this section to listen to the Old Testament and see how Peter says this Jesus fulfills it and is better. So let's get in. We're going to be going through 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 12, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to stop there because generally what happens is uh, the, the writers of the New Testament would, would write things to teach us. They would tell us what God has done first and what we need to do in response to that. And then there's this what's called a doxology, and all that means is praise. But here, Peter starts with blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this was a typical Jewish uh, uh, saying for God. In fact, in the Old Testament in Joshua 22, 33, it says this, And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them. In Luke 24, it says this, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, when I first read this, I thought, oh, hold on, hold on. Generally, when we think of someone blessing someone, the, the greater person blesses the lesser person. You know, when you're in need and someone maybe helps you with your light bill or, or you're stuck out in the rain and someone gives you a ride, you, you feel blessed. You're blessed because you were in need and you received something. But this is not what this means when it says we bless God. 
When we bless God, what that means is that we are acknowledging that he has blessed us, that he has given us all things. In fact, the NIV says, praise God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't so much so that we are looking down on God and we're saying, a benediction, I bless you. No, this is, Lord, you are blessed. I bless your name. So much so, like we, we, we come in on Sunday mornings and the first thing we do, we don't do announcements. We don't do, uh, uh, we don't speak first. We don't ask for an offering first. What we do is we bless the name of the Lord and this is where Peter starts. Peter starts with worship. And then he goes on. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I remember I was um, at my in-laws place one time and I was speaking with some of their friends and uh, they're Greek Orthodox by faith. They, they grew up Greek Orthodox and they were speaking to, to Catherine and I and I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I'm just antsy when someone wants to ask me anything about Christianity. I'm ready, right? And uh, this gentleman asked me, so are you guys like, you're Christian, right? And are you like the born again type of Christians, as if to say, if I would have said yes, they would have ran, sort of thing. So I said, yeah, well, this is what the scriptures teach. Jesus himself said in John 3 that you must be born again or born from above to see the kingdom of God. And so we went on and I explained to him what the scriptures say, but so often it seems like people would think there are different kinds of Christians. And if you're a born-again Christian, well, you're, you're the serious kind of Christian. You're the type that actually reads your Bible and, and attends fellowship and goes to church and uh, repents of sin and gives of your money. Th those are the born-agains. But here, what we learn is that to see the kingdom of God, like Jesus says in John 3, it is to be born again. But I want you to know one more thing. It says here, that he caused us to be born again. Now, I don't know how many of you here were born once, but I was, and I remember not asking my mother. I, I don't remember them asking my permission necessarily if I wanted to be born. And here, it's saying that we were dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We weren't just sick, but we were lifeless. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has caused us. And we respond in faith. But even faith is a gift. He causes us to be born again. This is a gift. And if you're here today and if you've been rejecting him through the gospel, he wants to cause you to be born again. And here, born again to what? To a living hope, a hope that doesn't die, and this word, to an inheritance. Now, you know, I, I'm not waiting for an inheritance myself, necessarily, uh, but I know people who are, and they're waiting for it. I mean, they're, they're waiting for that down payment on the house, or to get that car, or to get that bike, or to get whatever it is. But here, and all those things, what are they? What are they subject to? Every inheritance that you will get when your great, 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 great aunt goes is tainted by death, by evil, 
and by time. But here, listen, here, it's imperishable. Do you get that? It is undefiled, perfect, pure, and it is unfading. In the Old Testament, this word inheritance is used for the land of Israel, for the physical land. And it's saying, and God promised them, I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give this to you as an inheritance, as a gift. But what we learn through the Old Testament prophets is that the land was subject to decay and death. They were exiled. It was subject to defilement. In fact, the, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel if you want some kicks, read Ezekiel. Ezekiel talks about defilement and how the land is defiled. And time erodes everything. I mean, there's this new thing, right, on, on the internet. Really upset me. Where you, you put a picture up, right? And it tells you how old you are. And I'm like 10 years older. I'm like, whatever. No, I don't, I don't think I look that old. But it, 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 sort of just, it sort of just made me realize one thing. We're fading, I am fading. You are fading. And whatever it is that we're holding on to, whether it's our academic degree, our ministry, our spouse, our kids, our boyfriend, our girlfriends, our jobs, our money, our land, our house, our car, our boat, it's fading. And most of us here, are maybe uh, too young to feel the weight of this fading. And I'm beginning to feel it. But we're fading. And anything that you put your hope in, anything that you put your, your trust in here is subject to time, to death, and to evil. But the inheritance that the Lord God says he has for you is imperishable. It is undefiled and it is unfading. And on the backdrop of the Old Testament where the land was the inheritance for the people of God, where it was defiled, it faded. This is a beautiful hope for us. And one more thing, it is kept, at the end of that verse, it is kept in heaven for you. Notice this, it's, it's not here. It's not on this earth, this inheritance, what you will receive when the Lord comes back is not here. But listen, it is not heaven. Your home, if you're, if you're a Christian here, your final destination, your final resting place is not heaven. It's kept in heaven. But the Bible teaches something actually quite dramatically different. Listen to Romans. Listen to Paul. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The Bible does not teach 
that at the end of time, we will become disembodied souls and go up to this ethereal heaven. In fact, what the Bible teaches, and Russell Moore is going to help us here, the point of the gospel is not that we would go to heaven when we die. Instead, it is that heaven will come down, transforming and renewing the earth and the entire universe. Tim Keller says this, the Bible teaches that the future is not an immaterial paradise, but a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation 21, we do not see human beings taken out of the world into heaven, but rather heaven coming down and cleansing, renewing, and perfecting this material world. I grew up thinking, I grew up in church, and I grew up thinking, I had a little suitcase ready for me in my closet, because if Jesus is coming back, I got to be ready to go, right? Like, I'm ready. And, and, and even the, these feelings are still reticent. I was telling someone earlier, my, uh, a, a roof tile in my laundry came down because of the rain. I think it was uh, last night in the middle of the night, and I thought, Jesus is back. I'm ready. I'm going. I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm ready, Lord. But then I just stood up for an hour just cleaning the laundry. It wasn't, it wasn't Jesus, in fact, and he met me there, but it wasn't him. But still, in my mind, there's still the, this residue of this idea that somehow when I die or when Jesus returns, whichever one comes first, I'm going to leave this earth. He's going to burn it up, and I'm going to reside in heaven forever. But the Bible teaches something radically better and radically different, that we will have resurrected bodies and that this earth will be cleansed of all defilement, that this earth will be cleansed of all sin. Anything wrong will become untrue, as C.S. Lewis says. And you will live here on earth. And this adds so much weight to what we do here today, how we care for the earth and how we manage and steward what God has given us because this will not just be burned up into nothing. It will be purified and we will be here. And all of this, all of this is according to his great mercy. Did you notice that at the end? All of this is according to his great mercy. This isn't anything that you have done or that I have done or that I have earned or that you have earned. And that's the gospel, because religion says this. Religion says if you do a few things, if you care for the earth, or if you read your Bible every day, or if you come to church every Sunday, if you get into a gospel community and do the Connect course, all of these things that I would encourage you to do. But if we ever think that those things are the things that earn us this inheritance, we're wrong. This is according to his great mercy. And I need that. I need his mercy. And he continues. Who? Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in verse 4, we have that God is guarding the inheritance. It's being kept safe in heaven. And in verse 5, he's saying that he's guarding us through faith. It's sort of like this. 
if you ever had a couple friends who wanted to throw a surprise party for you, this is what happens. A few of them, they, they go and they prepare the party, the balloons, the cake, whatever it is they're preparing. And then you have a couple other ones who are guarding you. They're, they're keeping you away from your apartment for a whole day just so you don't wreck the surprise. And God is doing both those things. He has kept, he's keeping the inheritance in heaven for you. And he's guarding you for it, to usher you into it. Now, what are some ways that God guards us? Hebrews 10 says this, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. God guards us through fellowship, through one another, by giving us a family. By me being given to you and you being given to me, he guards us as we encourage one another. So church, not just coming to church, but being the church throughout the week, he guards us by giving us friends. Something that simple. A friend who's going to call you and say, how are you going today? I know you had a rough week, a rough day. Your kids didn't sleep. You lost your job. You're tempted in this particular way. How are you going? God guards us through that. He guards us by giving us the scriptures. He guards us by speaking to us through the Bible. And also he guards us by prayer. Not only ours, but check this out. I don't know if I think about this often enough, but do you know that Jesus is praying for you right now? Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding always on your behalf. So it's not only that, that we want to pray for one another, but we need to understand that, that Jesus is praying for me, that Jesus is praying for you, that Jesus is praying for us. So God guards us by fellowship by word, and by prayer. In fact, at the end of uh, uh, Luke 18, there's a story of a widow who's, who's continually going to this wicked judge, and she's asking for justice, and asking for justice, and asking for justice, and he's denying her because he's wicked, and he's corrupt, and he's unjust. And yet, her persistence, her persistence makes him give in. And Jesus says this, don't give up. Don't give up praying because my Father in heaven is not a wicked judge. Pray to be guarded. Eugene Peterson says this, perseverance, and that's perseverance is, is, a, is a fancy word that theologians use to, to mean that we will make it to the end. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. And he so calls us to partner with him in his faithfulness to us by fellowship, word, and prayer. And also notice this thing. This blew me away when Peter says that you are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And I think, hold on, aren't I already saved? But the Bible talks about salvation in three ways. It talks about salvation as past it talks about salvation as present, but it also talks about salvation being fully orbed and completed as future. 
In Romans 8, 24, it says this, for in this hope we were saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 4, by the grace you have been saved through faith. But 1 Peter later on is going to say this about salvation being a present and ongoing thing. He says in 2.2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And Paul, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the Bible talks about salvation being past. It happened in the past. Our faith. Christianity is an eschatological faith. It's something that's looking forward. Eschatology is something about the future. It's a study of the future, of what's to come. It's an eschatological faith grounded in the past, in the cross and the resurrection. But it transforms the present. It transforms the present. Christianity is an eschatological faith that is grounded in the past, but transforms the present. Your today is radically changed by what happened in the past to this God-man, Jesus Christ, and how he promises to come back and reveal this full salvation to us. But it changes everything we do today. And he continues in verse 6. In this, in what? In this gospel, in this reality that God has come in Christ to give us an inheritance that is undefiled, uh, imperishable, and unfading. In this, you rejoice. And I have to tell you, this week I didn't rejoice in this gospel. And the Lord has been speaking to me and, and enlivening me here and there. But ask yourself this question, like I asked myself last night. How's your rejoicing? Don't ask yourself how your Bible reading's going. Don't ask yourself how your prayer's going just yet. Don't ask yourself how your attendance is going or how your commitments are going. Ask yourself this. How's your rejoicing? Where does your heart go? Is it that in this you rejoice? Because Peter is so much more committed to our imaginations and our feelings and our, our, our rejoicing, our longings. Where is your rejoicing? Is your rejoicing in a new house? Is that where it is? Is that where it lies? Is that what is going to make you happy today? Or children? Or a raise? Where is your rejoicing? Or is it in sex? Is it in a relationship? Is, is it in religion? Is your rejoicing, or do you look back on your week and say, I am so great because I did all these things, and therefore, I rejoice in myself? Is that where it is? In this, in the gospel, you rejoice. Though, Peter continues, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Five things that Peter says here in these couple verses about suffering. And one thing that we need to know is that suffering comes with salvation. Because we just heard, right? We just heard a couple verses ago that we're being guarded. Why, why would we be ostracized? Why would we be bullied? Why would we be persecuted if we are being guarded by the power of God? And Peter here serves us a corrective. And he says, this being guarded by the power of God, this inheritance that is kept for you in heaven, it is not at odds with the fact that in this world you will suffer. He says five things. Compared to eternity, our suffering is brief. That's a hard truth. If you're suffering here, right, if you're in the middle of a storm, if you're in the middle of a furnace right now and you're still here, Praise be the God of our Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I praise God for you. I thank God for you that in the midst of a trial, whatever it is, you're here. But suffering will come. But this is talking about a particular kind of suffering. This is talking about a suffering that comes out of your reliance and your adherence, and your loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not saying, hey, I got, you know, uh, bullied at the office because I was a jerk. I'm being persecuted. No, no, you're a jerk, and you need to repent, and you need to change. You need to love the people in your office, or wherever you are, in, in your school, or in your mom's group, or your kids at home. Do not be persecuted. Peter later on is going to say, do not be persecuted as a swindler or as a thief. I'm going to add as a jerk. Don't be persecuted for that. Be persecuted because you love them. Be persecuted because you stand for truth in a way that has tears in your eyes. But our suffering is brief. And in the middle of a firestorm, in the middle of a furnace, it may seem like it's going on forever. And your feelings will tell you that God is unjust. And that's why we need to be guarded by fellowship, friends who will have faith for us, by word reminding us of the gospel that the Lord is not only just, but he suffered for us, and prayer for strength to get through our dealings. Compared to eternity, our suffering is brief. Number two, suffering will come in all shapes, colors, and sizes. Our suffering will look different to one another. Suffering and faith, number three, suffering and faith in the Messiah go hand in hand. Number four, suffering proves that our faith is real and genuine. And, and the most glorious one is this, suffering will end in glory. His life is short. But your suffering, my suffering, will end in glory. I don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, I thought it was my, my roof tile falling. You know, I thought this was glory. This is it. I'm, I'm done. We have no idea, the Bible says, what this is going to look like. But know this. Your suffering will end 
in glory. Because being guarded by God's power does not leave us exempt from the brokenness of this world. And you need to know that. Because hearing this, hearing that we're being kept by God's power will make us invincible to this. And there's a lot of preaching. There's a lot of teaching that says that. That says that because we belong to Jesus, we shouldn't suffer. That he suffered for us on the cross and therefore our suffering is done. And the Bible is absolutely against that. It is saying you will suffer. And then it gives you the grace to suffer through it. And to still be here when you're suffering. And to not renounce the name of Jesus because of your suffering. And he continues. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice again with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, this idea of rejoicing. Where where is that? But I want to camp out on one word here, soul, the salvation of your souls. Souls, what is Peter saying here? Because at first glance, what this looks like is what I was taught when I was a kid. That God comes here, he, Jesus returns, and our souls are saved. But this word could mean a lot of different things. And the, one of the main meanings that it has is an entity with personhood. The life of a person. The whole person, in fact, is what Peter is trying to say. That when Jesus comes back and is revealed, your whole person, your life. The same word is translated as life in other places. Your life will be saved. Your everything. When we think about our life, that's everything. Someone takes away your life. What happens? You're you're nothing. You're a shell. You go in the ground. But here... He's saying that when that happens, your life will be saved. Daniel Doriani, he says this, The goal of redemption is not the liberation of the disembodied soul from this wretched life, as the Greeks thought. It is a new creation which the whole person enjoys forever with both a new spirit and a new body. One, much like the resurrection body of Jesus, which freaked people out, right? Jesus can walk through walls and then eat some fish. Like, he, he did that. He can just uh, appear out of, no, out of thin air. He can float into the, the clouds of heaven. And yet, he told Thomas, touch me. Feel, feel, feel my hands. Feel my side. I still have the scars. I have a body, I have flesh and bones, and forever Jesus is in heaven as both God and man. And we're promised not a disembodied existence after this, but our whole selves will be renewed. And as Romans 8 says, the whole earth will be renewed. What that's going to look like, I'm not not sure if there's going to be an Erskineville in heaven. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know if it's going to go back to before industrialization. I I have no clue what this new earth will look like. But I know this. There will be a new earth. You will have flesh and blood and bones and thoughts and love and worship in your heart forever. 
forever. Forever. Forever. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This, this is basically what Peter's saying. When you read your Old Testament, when you read the Bible, everything is pointing towards Christ. Everything. When you read in the judges, when you see judge after judge after judge who comes in, rescues the people of Israel, and then they go back to their old ways, and they need another judge, and they need another judge, and they need another judge. You know what that's saying? That's not necessarily saying that these judges are just prototypes of Jesus. What it's saying is that they need a judge like Jesus. They need true deliverance. In Ezekiel, when you see the Spirit of the Lord leave the temple, the place where God said, this is where I will meet my people. What that is saying, what that's looking forward to is we need a new temple. One that isn't going to be defiled. One that is unfading. Jesus is our new temple. And when Adam, when we read the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, what do we need? We need someone who was like Adam and yet obeyed. And he gives us that obedience. And what Peter does throughout his letter over 40 times, that he, he, he alludes or he echoes the Old Testament. And what this is doing, it's giving us a contrast and saying, this is all pointing to Christ, and Christ supersedes all of it. All of it. And there's this contrast. This contrast that we find in the Bible. One that we stake our lives on. That if it were not to be true, we would be wasting our time. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, if this isn't true, we are the biggest fools, and I'm the biggest fool of today, of all. But this is the contrast. That there was an innocent man who was beaten, who had his beard plucked out, who was spat on, who was scourged, who was thirsty, who was hungry, who was nothing of a man once they were through with him. And he was perfect. And he was sinless. And on the cross is the greatest contrast of all. It's the beauty of the perfect and sinless son and the backdrop is the darkest of all, my sin. And when I see Jesus' 
sacrifice for me. As Paul says in Galatians, that he died for me. Yes, he died for us. But at times, I just need to look at the cross and say, Lord, you're there because of me. Martin Luther is famed of saying that each one of us holds the nails of Christ in our pockets. My sin is a thing that put Jesus up there. And what a contrast. That now, when he looks at you, when the Father looks at you, you know what he says? Let me tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, I wish you didn't do that again. He doesn't say, I'm a little bit ashamed of you now. He doesn't say, oh, how I would just wish you would get your act together. Who feels that? Who feels that? You know what he says? He says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my cherished daughter in whom I find delight. God not only loves you, but he likes you. And he likes you so much that he's given us fellowship and word and prayer so that we can become more like his son, Jesus. But not for a second should you ever think that he's upset, he's disappointed, he loves you. And just like a father will not, any any good father will not disown his son, his son can still hurt him, but he will never ever say, you're not my son. Because on the cross, your sin was given to Jesus and his righteousness, his goodness was given to you. This is something that we should rejoice in. This is something that when I think about my heart should want to leap out of my chest and say, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are we there? And if we're not there, let's be honest with the Lord and say, Lord, I'm I'm not there. I'm not there. Give me a fresh and Lord, I even I, we, pray, we pray now, Lord, give us a fresh knowledge, a fresh vision, a fresh understanding, a fresh weight of the reality, Lord, that you look at us and you say, you are my elect. Yes, you're exiles according to the culture, but you are my elect and I love you. You, you are my beloved. Father, help us in Jesus' name. That was just a bonus. Because we, we, we need that. You need, more than anything else this week, I want you to walk away and say, what I need today, in order for me to live in this culture as a resident alien, as an exile and elect, what I need first and foremost are not books, are not, uh, uh, um, uh, is not what I need is necessarily preaching or reading or anything. What you need is to appropriate the truth that you are loved by God. And thank God that he gives us preaching and he gives us books and he gives us prayer for us to appropriate those things. But that is the goal. That is the aim.
And I'm going to pray again. Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for Peter. We thank you that even as he denied the Lord, we thank you that you, have, you gave him grace. Even after he denied you three times, Lord, you gave him grace and you turned him around and you made him a pillar of the church. And you gave him the inspiration to write these things. And we even think about the Old Testament prophets who you gave inspiration not for themselves but for us to serve us. So, Father, if anyone walks away with anything, make it this, Holy Spirit, that we feel the love of Christ. We feel that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we live to please you. May we live to honor you in our suffering. May we bring glory to you in our pain. May we extend that pain to others so that they will be comforted. And in all these things, Father, we wait for you. We wait for the revelation of Jesus Christ, that he would come back and renew the entire universe. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. We're going to rejoice now. We're going we're gonna to sing. But what we're also going to do is that we're going to partake of Lord's Supper or communion. And what that is, what that symbolizes is on the cross, on that great contrast of my sin and his righteousness, as his body was torn apart for us, we have the bread. And as his blood flowed from his veins on that ground, we drink the juice. And in all these things, we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we would love to pray for you and with you. So afterwards, please meet myself or Brian up here in the front, and we'd love to pray for you then.